everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. So thank you all so much for joining me for this fun and special episode. So typically, the FearCast is a question and answer based podcast. You can send me in a question about OCD or anxiety and you know how to live with it, how to treat it, how to help a friend with it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll, I'll, I will uh, uh, answer those questions. I um, it, put a little bit more information about that at the end of the show. But if you'd like a question answered for the podcast, go to fearcastpodcast.com and you can send me a message there. You can send me an audio question, uh, which uh, uh, best way to do that is to go over through Instagram and just send me a uh, direct message and uh, record your voice there. You can record it on your phone and email it to me at questions at fearcastpodcast. There's plenty of ways to go about doing that. But this episode is going to be a little bit different. So today is going to be kind of an overview episode. We're not going to be going over any questions directly today, but we're going to be discussing hypochondria, health anxiety, health OCD. We're going to be talking about this uh, and just going over what it looks like, what are some common obsessions, some common compulsions, and most, most importantly, some common treatments that can go along with it. So, you can join me for today just to listen to what it means to have uh, uh, health anxiety, uh, how it impacts you, what it looks like for treatment, and uh, perhaps there'll be some stuff in here that maybe resonates with you, maybe doesn't resonate with you, maybe resonates, may, may resonate with a family member. So that's why I wanted to put this episode together to kind of have this broad overview of the of the subtype or the diagnosis. Um, and oddly enough, for today, we're going to have some, um, <coughs> excuse me, some some ads uh, sprinkled in throughout this. Um, incidentally, also, we're going to have some kind of exposure types of things sprinkled in throughout the episode. So uh, buckle up for it. It's going to be, it's kind of new. I've never had any ads for any of the shows. So it's going to be kind of a fun uh, addition. At least I think it's going to be fun. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. So why don't we jump into it now? So the title of the episode is hypochondria. However, as I mentioned at the top, it's it's often called illness anxiety disorder, health anxiety, hypochondriasis, or health OCD. There's a lot of different names for it, but it, it kind of ultimately amounts to the kind of the same thing. There are some real specific differences between some of these. Um, so, for example, you know, previously it was diagnosed as hypochondriasis, which I know some people still use, um, but it was changed recently to illness anxiety. Anxiety disorders. Hypochondriasis requires a somatic symptom, but illness anxiety does not require a somatic symptom, which can then include imagined, feared, or potential illnesses that are the subject of the obsession, hence, you know, making some changes. So, Along with health anxiety, hypochondriasis, whatever you want to call it, um, there are going to be some kind of related symptoms. Um, so there are three, or related, excuse me, disorders. Somatic symptom disorder, conversion disorder, and factitious disorder. I'll just go over those briefly. Uh, somatic symptom disorder. Um, it's kind of like an extreme focus on physical symptoms, such as pain or fatigue, which causes major mental or emotional distress. Um, and you may or may not actually have been diagnosed uh, or have a diagnosed medical condition, but the reaction to it is, or reaction to a symptom is excessive or atypical. Conversion disorder, this is experienced when a person experiences 
uh, physical or sensory problems such as paralysis, numbness, blindness, deafness, or seizures with no underlying uh, neurologic pathology. So this often can be uh, caused by traumatic experiences or, or anxiety. Uh, lastly, Factitious disorder. This is a disorder in which someone dece uh, deceives others by appearing sick or by purposefully getting sick or by kind of self injury. Most commonly, this is um, uh, most commonly known uh, kind of version of this is called Munchausen syndrome. If you've heard of that, hopefully, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, but it's a factitious disorder uh, where someone is, uh, it's a disorder where they create an illness to manipulate, get attention, or to achieve some other uh, a purpose. So, um, you know, those are kind of some things that you'll see along the way, but, you know, we'll go into more specifically for this episode, um, hypochondria or hypochondriasis, again, health anxiety. I'll probably just call it health anxiety since I tend to just refer it as that. Um, but for right now, let's um, do a quick ad break before I get into kind of where health anxiety comes from. Uh, but this first ad is it comes from uh, an up-and-coming kind of heavy metal band uh, named Inevitable Doom. Uh, their new album, Unavoidable, will be dropping soon, so I'll be playing their single, Aneurysm, uh, in its entirety here. So I didn't know it was going to be that short, but there it is. Check it out uh, from uh, Inevitable Doom. Um, so let's shift on into where does health anxiety come from? So th there are a couple different ways um, we'll go over. So first is through faulty beliefs. So if someone has kind of irrational beliefs about health, about disease transmission or disease development or the treatment itself, uh, that can th those faulty beliefs can contribute to greater anxiety about it. Difficulty managing uncertainty, such as with OCD and other anxiety disorders, can also lead to the development or worsening of health anxiety. Additionally, family or culture can contribute to the development of health anxiety. Sometimes the focus of an illness or the focus on a particular illness, the, the kind of the idea of the likelihood of having an illness uh, within a family or the consequences and the meaning of an illness can vary between cultures and family of origins. Um, families who are preoccupied with a health or with health rather are sometimes kind of likely to pass on a fear of illness to their kids. Lastly, past experiences can contribute to the development or worsening of health anxiety. Um, so previous experiences with health issues or interactions with the health system may impact, may impact health anxiety. So for example, previous inadequate care from a health provider, uh, maybe health, uh, physical health or even mental health, um, can increase distrust in tests, resulting in the desire for multiple tests. Another example, perhaps a family member getting a form of cancer may increase the chances of, of an obsessive preoccupation with cancer or even that particular form of cancer uh, for someone who is prone to obsessive thinking. So while health anxiety has its own diagnosis, we can consider this as either a subtype or even kind of a kissing cousin to obsessive compulsive disorder. So we're going to consider it here in the light of the obsessive compulsive disorder cycle. So we've talked about this before on previous episodes, but I always think it's helpful to reiterate 
kind of how OCD works and how the cycle of reinforcement and anxiety tend to work so that you can start to see how your anxiety or your behaviors are are playing out uh, within this. And the framework that I typically think about it as, <clears throat> as kind of thinking about as there are internal or external triggers. Now, everything that you and I are ever going to encounter, do, think about, et cetera, I, I would say is pretty neutral and neither good nor bad, right nor wrong. The internal triggers can be thoughts, feelings, sensations, etc. To that end, it can be physical symptoms of things, um, or they can be categorized as that. External triggers can be stuff that you'll see, hear, interactions that you'll have, etc. Stuff that's outside of you, right? So those encountering those either internal triggers, external triggers will kind of lead into this obsession. This obsession is often this what if or if then sort of question. Um, it can also be known as the obsessive doubt. It's the question about yourself, the world around you, your future, etc. Or it's come, sometimes it presents itself as the suggestion as to what might be true about you or what may happen, um, and that can that can then uh, be. Uh, approached with in the sense of like, I don't think this is true, or this doesn't seem accurate, or oh man, I don't want this. Um, but think about it as like this if-then statement. If this is if this happens, or if I do this, then this may happen, right? Or the what if. Gosh, what if I catch this disease? What if I touch this and it results in this illness, right? What if I get sick and give it to somebody else? Now, the outcome of this story, and I, I call it a story because that, at this point, that's all it is. At this point, someone is having a thought. It's kind of a, think about it like this academic exercise, this kind of a, a thought exercise uh, as like, what if this ha were to happen? Well, you could have a conversation about it. You could plan it out. You could say, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. But oftentimes with OCD or the OCD cycle, it, it's responded to not with curiosity or through, um, uh, uh, through a conversation. It's responded to with this anxiety, this fear, and from that, compulsions come into play. So the compulsion is going to be anything that somebody does to try to eliminate, get rid of, neutralize that feeling, or to make sure that that obsession, that story doesn't happen in the way that that person's anxiety, their brain is suggesting it's going to happen. So Compulsions can pretty much be anything, and we'll go into some more common. Uh, we'll go into some common obsessions and common compulsions that you'll see with health anxiety and health OCD um, in just a moment. But once once those compulsions are done, they often come with it this um, the sense of relief, the sense of. Uh, uh, kind of restored confidence, this restored certainty that that they're okay, that their future is okay, that nothing bad's going to happen, that they're fine, or that you know if if something happens, you know, or if they catch an illness, they'll catch it early and it'll be fine, right? The problem is with that, while it 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 feels good for a moment, what it does is it then sends the message that whenever this previously neutral thought, right, what if I catch this disease? Which again, it's a neutral thought. It's a thought. But when that is reinforced and the anxiety is taken away, it reinforces that this is how we deal with this thought. This is the right thing to do. When you have anxiety or fear related to this story, this is the right way to deal with it. So we go into this cycle, right? And inevitably, when you have that relief, it also is very short-lived, so it you can feel confident, you can feel good for a moment, but then that doubt comes back. 
OCD often is going to throw this, the, this like, yeah, but, or this, you know, suggestion that you need to go further, go deeper into it to try to figure it out more. So let's say, for example, you know, you go through this reassurance and you, you know, say like, well, what if I, what if this is the common cold? That makes me nervous. Well, let me read up on it. Oh, good. It's not the common cold because not all my symptoms match up. Oh, relief. But then your brain goes, well, what if I have an, I, what if I have an illness or what if I have a symptom that isn't listed on this website? Oh, so you're already back to the beginning of the cycle. Or what if, you know, what if I'm going to develop something, right? So it pulls this person back into the anxiety because there's this whole other thing they need to be looking out for and now be on edge for, right? Or it's, you know, I call my doctor and they said, ah, you, you know, you didn't catch anything. Yeah, but, yeah, but here we go. What if it's a false negative, so now you're still back at, well, what if I have this disease? Oh, no. What do I do about it? And, that, and that's where your compulsions often come in. So before I get into the common obsessions and compulsions, uh, we'll play another, we'll, we'll do another ad break here. Feeling a little off, maybe achy, fever, cough, congestion, maybe nothing at all. You might be experiencing COVID. That's right. COVID the disease that incorporates all symptoms of all diseases, so you never know what you have. But, unlike the flu, your friends will think you have the plague, or they'll think you're a shill for the liberal media. Either way, you'll be ostracized like a first-century leper. If you haven't already, try COVID. Who knows? You may have already had, but you didn't know it, and suddenly wonder why your grandma has it. The holiday season may have come and gone, but Valentine's Day, midterms, and a loved one's birthday are always right around the corner. Consider COVID for your diabetic dad, uncle with a heart issue, overweight granddad, or even your totally healthy partner. For a more permanent option, long COVID can be an especially good value. Try our brand new strain of COVID, coming probably this winter, when everybody has been inside during winter break. COVID, the tastes like chicken of diseases. All right, so let's go over some common obsessions when it comes to health anxiety. So as I mentioned, the basic thing that can cover everything is a preoccupation with having or getting a disease, serious or otherwise, right? A common question can be like, what if I have X disease or could get X disease, X disease right? Um, the, uh, you know, and, and that can, you know, fill in the blank with anything, right? You know, some of the more popular ones I would say would be cancer of all types. HIV AIDS has been really popular. Um, other STIs, such as herpes or uh, 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 crabs or genital warts, things of that nature, uh, developing dementia uh, is common, uh, developing multiple sclerosis, whether or not someone has a heart disease or a heart issue, um, an aneurysm, as uh, the previous uh, song, uh, a brain or other kind of tumor, uh, infertility can be uh, an obsession. Like, what if I, you know, what if I have or will develop this, or what if I have it and I don't even know about it? Um, COVID, COVID is still a worry that a lot of people have, and it can even be as basic as, you know, what if I catch the flu or what if I get the cold, right? Um, another common obsession can be, you know, just, you know, is my body breaking down? Am I just going to develop, um, you know, this overall weakness, or I have a weakness, and now what does that mean? 
Um, or if it, someone has pain, you can have a thought of like, well, what if this pain won't get any better? Um, or what if this pain or symptom that I have is a sign of something worse or something terrible? Right now, I'm not going to catch everything in this episode, but, um, you know, this is just a way that um, the brain can latch on to anything related to health and say, oh, no, what if this is coming down the pipe for me? So some common compulsions then. Now, I'm I'm breaking down compulsions into different categories because they they can kind of be grouped in a way. Uh, And I'll go over some specific examples of this. And if these are some of your compulsions, um, you know, it might be something to note. And it's also, as we get into treatment, compulsions are going to be one of the best ways to look at treatment, to look at doing exposures, and most importantly, the response prevention. And I'm going to talk a little bit about exposure and response prevention later on. But with uh, these common compulsions, you know, we want to start by noting what are the things that someone is doing about that obsession. So, um, compulsions can be both overt or covert, meaning um, they can be overt things that you see, things that are outside of our body, right? Stuff that you might notice in a friend seeing them do. Um, They can also be covert, right? And this is a lot of the stuff that goes on in our heads. This is where um, the idea of the pure O, purely obsessional comes in, where it's just just going over information in our head or reviewing things in our body or our memory. Um, so let's go into that. So the first category might be uh, compulsions of reassurance. So this can be things like going to the doctor repeatedly to get tests done, going to different doctors to get, quote, second opinions on the first set of tests, asking friends about your health, covertly asking friends uh, how they would deal with, you know, X illness, right? Uh, Googling symptoms is ever popular. Um, And it can be, you know, also reading, uh, going to things like Reddit and reading about symptoms or someone's experience with it. Um, Verbally saying, you know, I'm fine, or it's nothing. Uh, Comparing yourself to others can also be uh, reassurance seeking or comparing yourself to others to confirm that your symptoms are are nothing uh, because it was nothing for them, right? If they've had an an illness or if they've had something similar, you can say, ah, we're we're totally different. Um, And also comparing yourself to others uh, and confirming that your symptoms are are then something uh, because it was something for them, right? So it's kind of this double-edged sword of comparison. Um, neutralization, finding articles that convey kind of the opposite of what you fear. So sometimes it'll happen where someone will hear, you know, that this is a symptom of this illness and they'll go online and through their research, they'll find a website or they'll find a page that talks about this symptom, not being part of that constellation of ill uh, in that illness or being, you know, maybe being a symptom, but not being a significant one. So it kind of neutralizes their fear by having the opposite of what they believe or what they've heard. Um, uh, avoidance is another kind of categorization of, um, uh, of, of compulsion. Um, so this can be avoiding going to doctors or avoiding tests. And we talk, talked about doing tests or wanting tests or doing more tests. Some people will just say like, I'm not going to go to doctors. I'm going to avoid tests because they may confirm a health issue. Um, and this is what I call the head in the sand approach, or, uh, you know, it's kind of the idea of, you know, don't go to the doctor because if you go to the doctor, then you find out you're sick, right? So kind of by this logic, by avoiding a doctor, then you're never sick, I, I suppose. 
Um, other avoidances can be refusing to eat certain foods that could lead to cancer or other health issues, um, such as you know sugars, fats, salt, burnt food, red meat, pork, etc. Um, refusing to go to certain places, such as places that have uh, uh, that have smog, right? So like uh, being in being in big cities, refusing to go to um, uh, refusing to visit some certain cities or refusing to go to certain places because the air might be, you know, not great or not ideal. Um, lastly, uh, resisting or wearing, resisting touching or or wearing gloves when handling certain objects. Uh, so in other, in other words, avoidance of coming in contact with something. Um, and this can often happen in California. We have something called Prop 65. So um, it's a warning that has to go on objects or even, you know, in entire places that let you know that something within that item or something within that place has been identified as a potential carcinogen or a potential cancer causing uh, thing. And, um, you know, it, it can be uncomfortable to say, hey, this item that you have or this thing that you're wearing or this thing that you you know, have on you somehow or around you has something in it that is known to potentially lead to cancer. So avoiding those things entirely can be really common. Um, rituals, so ritualistic behavior, so following a highly rigid health regimen to, pre to prevent health issues. Now, this isn't the same as generally being healthy. This is something that is, you know, fastidious, rigid, even limiting in its scope. Um, using alternative medicine instead of proven medication to ward off future health illnesses is a, a possible ritual. Um, or being, you know, or engaging in unnecessary or excessive health procedures. Um, we're going to get on uh, into some of the mental compulsions uh, in just a minute, but uh, let's take a quick ad break here. Infertility affects 9% of men and 11% of women worldwide. In the United States, 10 to 15% of couples are infertile. So, if you haven't already, ask yourself, are you infertile? Most of the time, couples don't even know that they are until after a year of trying to have a child. And even then, most couples don't have the means to get tested or even have access to competent doctors to evaluate and treat infertility. Your junk works fine, and no one has ever noticed a difference in your sexual performance, appearance, or function. But infertility flies below the radar. It's not there, and you're fine, until you didn't realize it is, and you're not. And by the time you know, it's probably years after you wished you knew. Ever consider adoption? You will. Thought about sperm donors? It's like the worst version of Tinder. Ever consider asking your brother or your partner's brother to donate their sperm because genetically it'd be really close, but then you'd definitely know what your child would look like if your partner had sex with your brother or if you had sex with your partner's brother? You are now. So, from one of the leading causes of heartbreak, tears, and deep, vulnerable, revealing questions about what being a man or a woman really means to you or your partner, try infertility. Infertility. Family planning whether you wanted it or not. 
All right, so let's go over some mental compulsions that can often happen with health anxiety. Um, So to start the list off, bodily checking. So this can be looking internally for right feelings or even wrong feelings, kind of the evaluation of like, does my body feel okay? Does it feel as it's, quote, supposed to or should? Um, Or looking for bad feelings, either scanning for, um, you know, common symptoms that you've had or even looking for new, quote, bad feelings or feelings that are uh, unwanted, unwelcome, etc. Um, someone can engage in mental compulsions by evaluating whether or not today someone feels uh, better, the same, or worse than before. Um, and, and to that end, I think evaluation or comparison has has never been good or never been helpful or turned out good for someone with anxiety. Oftentimes, whatever the comparison is, it's usually considered worse than somehow, worse than we were before. Um, another mental compulsion can be hyper-focusing on particular body parts and to look for any changes. So, you know, think about, um, you know, physical sensations, you know, how's my knee, how's my ankle doing? How's my kind of general, you know, GI tract feeling today, right? How's my, you know, how's my back feeling today? How's my, you know, fill in the blank, right? But hyper-focusing on the particular body part to look for any of those changes. Um, Another can be scouring the past, looking for anything in your past that could lead to a current or a future health issue, right? Like thinking about the past, like, all right, did I, you know, touch anything, interact with anything that could have been on the Prop 65 list um, that could, that I should then look out for? Uh, how much time did I spend around that thing? Did I ingest foods that previously were considered safe and now are not, right? Um, another can be scenario twisting the past. So what that's what that is is a, it's a compulsion where you mentally change details uh, to consider how your life or your or your life would be different or how your future would somehow be different if you um, if, if that thing were different, right? So instead of growing up in this area, if I grew up here, you know, would I be feeling better or worse? Would I be feeling? Would I not experience the illness that I do have? Um, you know, or or you know, if I had just done this differently or made this left turn, what the goal of that sometimes is is to just give someone reassurance that you know either they are okay, will be okay, um, that it's not that bad, or that um, you know this hope that you know this vision that they could have avoided this thing that they are experiencing or could be experiencing. But ultimately, what that just ends up being is this is is a never ending cycle because you know we can't change the past. Um, so lastly on this list I'll have is a crystal ball reading, uh, which is uh, kind of reading the future to see how your your life will be different or better or worse if you had a specific illness or a specific disease or what will happen if you do this treatment or not. And really it's just tr- spending time stepping out of the present into fantasy where you're imagining yourself as in a different situation. And the reality is, is that, you know, we, we do this all the time as a daydreamer or, you know, just thinking and, you know, playing with, uh, uh, playing with your imagination, but it can really, it can either spike anxiety or it can be used as a compulsion as a way of giving yourself reassurance that, you know, if you do this, this, and this, you know, imagining that everything will be okay. But that's this, you know, false engagement with, uh, with the future that ultimately is going to be unhelpful. All right, before I get into treatment options, uh, I just have another quick uh, ad break. So this is kind of a a short one. They didn't send me any music for this one, but uh, it's just this um, short, I suppose, little song. So, So I suppose it goes like this. 
From toilets to counters to pens to doors, we'll get inside you forevermore. You can't even see it, but you better believe it. It's herpes. It's there for life. Well, there's, there's that one. So I guess let's get into treatment options. Treatment options, we're just going to be going over a couple of different things that are commonly used within OCD and anxiety treatment. So I'm going to be going over cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, acceptance and commitment therapy, and a little bit of something from inference-based CBT, so ICBT. Um, and I have, uh, I have a past episode entirely on ICBT, and you can go back and listen to that for more information about what that would look like. Um, but let's kind of go into what treatment commonly looks like. So um, CBT, ERP, ACT, I, mean, um, I guess suppose ACT is sometimes lumped into there, but at the very least, CBT and ERP are considered part of the gold standard of treatment for OCD. So I'll start with CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and think about it as um, it, it's treatment method where it looks at your thoughts and how it impacts your behaviors. So it looks at the thoughts that you have and to see how they're potentially inaccurate or potentially distorted or blown out of proportion or minimized or uh, twisted in some sort of inaccurate way that's leading to this anxiety or contributing to this anxiety. And if we can think about our thoughts differently or think about our relationship to something or, or you know, think about the world differently, perhaps it'll impact what we do differently. My basic example to that is sometimes like, you know, if, if you think, like if you're afraid of snakes, sometimes the thought about snakes or even spiders is, you know, if I if I see a snake, snakes are poisonous, it's going to bite me, I'm, it's going to hurt, and I'm going to die. Now, if that's the story about snakes, I mean, that's, yeah, then encountering any snake, thinking about snakes, looking at snakes is probably going to make you feel anxious and you're going to want to what? Avoid, kill it, run away, uh, hide, right? Fight it, step on it, I don't know what you're going to do, but point is, is that it, the thought you have will impact what you do. It seems very, pretty simple. But now let's, if we were to then rethink that story, we can think about if there's a safer way to interact with snakes, right? Are all snakes dangerous? I mean, no, not all, well, I mean, not dangerous. Are all snakes poisonous? No, not all snakes are poisonous. But, you know, some snakes will just uh, squeeze you to death. But then, all right, back to, are, is there a safe way to interact with snakes? Well, maybe st keeping your distance from a snake, not, anta not antagonizing a snake. If you're going to grab a snake, maybe there's a, if you have to grab a snake, maybe you grab it here instead of there, right? So if we can gather more information and think about, um, you know, interacting with a snake, and I mean, to that end, if you get bitten by a snake, does that mean that you're automatically going to die? No. If a snake is even around you, does that mean it's automatically going to bite you? Potentially no, right? So we're thinking differently about the lethality of snakes. So if you can think about it differently, maybe then based on all that information, would you be then willing to interact with snakes differently or go someplace where there may be a snake given this understanding, this new understanding you have about snakes, right? So that's you know, in a nutshell, how CBT tends to work. So one of the more popular things that we do within CBT is we start out with something called the alternative thought record. Now, treatment will be different from, from provider to provider, and some people will argue for not engaging with the alternative thought record. Some people do. Um, I, I tend to 
I tend to do this with my clients um, based on, I think it's helpful to have a grounding in reality, grounding in a better understanding of the world around us. Some people argue this is reassurance seeking. And yes, everything I'm about to mention in treatment can be used inappropriately as reassurances or one of the, one of the other compulsions that we're doing. So that's something to keep an eye out for. But within, um, within treatment, if I'm working with someone, I, I want to look at their fear and I want to see if we can challenge the legitimacy of it, right? So the alternative thought record, we, so we're going to challenge the legitimacy of the fear and the likelihood of the outcome of that fear happening. You can use a formal alternative thought record form to observe the trigger and the feared story and to develop an alternative thought uh, alternative thought, or kind of a more rational thought. Um, and, and there are a lot of different ways to find this. Um, a lot of people do them slightly differently. I know there's, if you just search alternative thought record or, um, you know, challenging alternative thoughts within CBT. There'll be a you know seven-column form. It's a whole bunch of stuff that you can do, and that can be helpful. Um, but another way to think about it is to look at uh, a, a truncated version is the courtroom method. Um, and to kind of think about it like, does your fear or your feared belief stand up in court, right? So we can kind of go through the story and say, is there evidence for your fear? Um, and is there reasonable evidence that would speak against it? Do your symptoms 100% point to the fear being true, or could it be numerous things? Or is there a feared illness, or is the feared illness missing some something or missing some of the vital symptoms that would say it is that symptom? So in other words, is it missing something that would discredit or disqualify that diagnosis? Um, another thing to think about, you know, do you have a history with the illness or a similar illness? Um, and if so, how did how did it go? Right? What can you expect? So, you know, a good example here might be, you know, if you've had COVID before and you're still worried about COVID, well, reflect back on, well, how'd that go? How'd that previously go? Um, you know, did you die? No. Did you end up in the hospital? Probably not. Right. For the most part, it's going to be, I kind of got sick and it kind of sucked and I was a social pariah and then I felt better, right? Um, you can think about then, you know, do you have a history of health anxiety, right? Because um, if, if you have a history of health anxiety, you might tend to get consumed by a medical condition or symptom cluster. If you're noticing that and if you acknowledge that you do have this, it's possible not it, it's it's not a guarantee but it's possible that perhaps this would fit into it um, you know another way to think about it would be what would be what's the most logical who's the most logical reasonable and rational person in your life and what would they say about your fear would they agree with you would they disagree with you it's just another way so all of this is just another way to start thinking about your fear differently thinking about the illness and to gather a little bit more information to say maybe the way that i'm thinking about this health issue is perhaps uh, inaccurate now the goal of changing or challenging excuse me these thoughts is not to give you certainty uh, but it's just to give you or just to show you that certainty of the worst case scenario may not hold up it opens the door to the necessity of accepting doubt and uncertainty. So in other words, it's saying, you know, perhaps the way that I'm thinking about this is inaccurate and it may not be that I, it, it may be false that I have this illness, right? I may not have it, but you can say, well, but I don't have nothing or I might not have nothing. 
So it, it asks you then to sit with this place of doubt and uncertainty. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do, especially when it comes with exposure and response prevention. Now, within some of this, you know, alternative, alternative record uh, uh, challenging, you might do something that sometimes people call one and done reassurances. And that can be asking for information and getting, and, and getting that information once and then going with it. Now, sometimes this can be, and this can be kind of dangerous, dangerous. It can be, it can lead to a slippery slope of reassurance seeking. So one of the things to think about with this might be looking at um, uh, going and getting a medical test actually done. So going and talking to a doctor, going and ruling out the illness, right? If you've never experienced something, go to the doctor about it, have it checked out, have to do the tests, and then go with it. Now, this often then leads into what my rule of thumb is for health anxiety. This is my rule of thumb, and this is what I talk with all, all, all of my clients about this with when it comes to health anxiety. So, we're all going to get something. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to, you know, we're all going to get something with our body not feeling right or not going right, okay? So, if it's something you've never, ever, ever experienced before, Go to the doctor. Talk to a medical professional. Don't talk to your plumber. Don't talk to your cousin who's a, you know, who's an engineer. Talk to a doctor about it and get information. And don't talk to Dr. Google about it. Dr. Google doesn't know. Dr. Google thinks everything is cancer. So go and talk to a doctor. And do their tests. Find out what it is. And it's either something or it's nothing. And they'll tell you what to do. And you go with it. Now, if it's something you've had before, or if it's something similar to what you've had before, perhaps you can do this. Perhaps you can wait before going to a doctor or seeking medical help. You can kind of wait to see if it starts to get better. If it starts to get better, great. Gradually starting to get better, great. Leave it alone, your body's doing a thing. If it's staying the same, great. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait to see what happens, right? If it's staying the same though, and you've had that checked out before and nothing's happening, well, wait. Lastly, if it's getting worse or if it's significantly causing pain or limiting your function, go to see a doctor, right? I'm not crazy or not awful in the sense of saying you can never go to a doctor. If it is causing severe pain or limiting your function, it's wise to go to a doctor and have that checked out. But again, if it's something that you've had before, let's say, you know, it's uh, like I have a lung issue, all right? I get pneumonia and bronchitis a lot, a lot. So, I've had this happen in the past. I've felt sick, have been sick, been congested in my lungs, right? And I Googled my symptoms. And you know what? Um, this is a, I looked at it up in the Web, WebMD. Uh, it said either I have bronchitis or lung cancer. All right. So I can look at that. And that was a silly thing for me to have done. But um Man, if I had health anxiety, you better believe that my brain was going to latch on to lung cancer, right? And that's probably not, and, and that would have been terrible if that were true. But what I need to remember in that was I looked at the, the you know, uh, 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 bronchitis or whatever I had at the time. And, you know, I could say, all right, I've had this a hundred times before. I have felt these symptoms before. They don't kill me. Right now, they're not, you know, painful, it's obnoxious, but it's and it's kind of staying the same. And for me, it'll kind of stay the same for a couple of days, couple of weeks, but eventually slowly start to get better. 
So I don't go to a doctor. I kind of let it ride out. I do the things that I historically have done to help me with my health issue. And it typically works. Now, if it's progressively getting worse or causing more pain or more dysfunction, I'm going to go to a doctor and I'm going to do the tests and see what it is and follow what their direction is. So that's my rule of thumb. Now, does that work for everybody? No, there are some, you know, specific circumstances that you may want to do something different. But again, that's something to work out with your therapist. But that's where also one and done reassurances can come in. So it can be where you go to a doctor, you have something checked out, you see what they have to say, and then you go with it. And you see what the outcome is. Now, we'll switch into exposure and response prevention. Because the first thing, again, we've looked at the thoughts that we're having, challenging the thoughts, thinking about our thoughts in a different way, taking our whole self into account, and seeing if that is then going to impact and if we'd be willing to impact what we do about it. So let's go over exposure and response prevention. ERP tends to be the most important component of treatment or often is the most important uh, component of it. And ERP, for those who are new to this or considering uh, starting treatment for hypochondria, health anxiety, um, it's two parts. It's exposure and response prevention. So these two parts are really important to kind of pull apart and to look at what the purpose of them are and why you're doing them and and also to then say when you're doing them so the um uh, so the first part would is exposure. So exposure is ultimately, uh, well, the, the, the definition that I often give for this is ERP is getting closer and closer to the thing that you're afraid of while resisting and, and withholding anything that would undermine, reduce, or get rid of that bad feeling, right? So exposure, getting closer and closer to the thing that you're afraid of. Now, this doesn't have to then mean doing the thing that you're afraid of or having to have that thing happen, but it's getting closer to being near or, or, or thinking about or experiencing a, a, a something similar to the thing that you are afraid of. So I'll give some examples to that. So exposure simply can be just allowing the thought of something to be there. Let's say you're afraid of the number 13. Exposure is just simply having the number 13 be in your presence. That's really it. For exposure to things like cancer or a health issue, it can be simply reading an article intentionally getting closer to the thing that you're afraid of, reading an article about HIV AIDS, reading an article about cancer, reading an article about getting an illness or a disease, etc. Now, sometimes you can have intentional exposure and there's also natural exposure. Intentional exposure is going to be things that you specifically go out of your way to go do. This is often called active exposure. But it's when you say, you know what, I'm not feeling anxious. There's nothing in my life right now that is particularly triggering. I'm going to go out of my way to experience something, think about something, go near something, etc., that amplifies my anxiety. Now, why would you do that? Well, to be willing to go and have an uncomfortable feeling. It's important to remember that OCD, anxiety, isn't really about the content. It's about that feeling. It's about that anxiety that you get. And it's about the difficulty of sitting with and having an uncomfortable experience. So we're sitting with the idea. This idea is uncomfortable. 
So we're going to sit with it. We're going to say, all right, this is an uncomfortable thing. I don't love this thought. I don't love the feelings that come along with it. But sometimes I get them and they are out of my control. But remember, as we've talked about before, these are just simply thoughts and feelings, stories, and facts, meaning like cancer is real. These illnesses are real. But thinking about them doesn't mean that we actually have them. It just means that we are thinking about them. So exposure is progressively allowing for more and more, uh, kind of building a, building a greater and greater tolerance for that thing being in your life in some way. Now, the response prevention piece. I would argue the response prevention is the most important part of any of this. The response prevention is, the response is the compulsion. Prevention, not doing said compulsion. So, the response that you have an urge to do, and we've talked a lot about them, remember just a moment ago, about reassurances and avoidances, etc. Resisting doing those things that would help you to not feel anxious or uncomfortable, what that's going to do is let you tolerate and learn that you can manage and get through that feeling of discomfort, and you can get to the other side. And just because you have the anxiety or the discomfort and that alarm system is going off in your head about the anxious and uncomfortable thing, that that alarm system stops at some point and you can get through that hump of, un- of discomfort and get to the other end of it. And that that thing didn't then happen to you or it's unlikely to happen to you and it's significantly unlikely to happen to you. But that we learn those two things through exposure and response prevention. So... As you go about doing this, one of the places to start is um, starting with a list of all of your compulsions, starting with a list of all the things that you do to help alleviate, avoid, undermine that discomfort. And again, we we went through that whole list uh, just a moment ago about potential compulsions that you might do. So it can be helpful to start thinking about all the things that you do in regards to that and then thinking about what would it take for you to resist them, reduce them, or delay them so that you can start to experience some of that discomfort when it's there so you can kind of face it head on. Now, in the process, we're accepting uncertainty because if you can think about the compulsion is an act that you do to kind of provide a sense of safety or provide a sense of comfort. It's it's done to say, all right, I'm being in the face of this dangerous, scary thing. I need to do X to start feeling better, to make sure that I'm okay, to give myself confidence that the people around me are safe. So when we pull out that, quote, safety behavior, the compulsion, when we pull that out, it's perceived as we're exposed, we're exposed now to this danger. We are now vulnerable to whatever that outcome is. Now, that's a great place to be, being at risk of something dangerous is not the same as doing something dangerous and doing something risky, but it's being at at risk of it. And we're learning that we can be at risk of a lot of things. And we are at risk of a lot of things all the time anyways. We just don't consider it or think about it in that way. So we're pulling out that compulsion and saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I feel uncomfortable about this. I have all these alarms going off in my head saying that something bad may happen. And we're going to say, okay, we're going to see. And you know what? I'll deal with it when I get there. But remember, we're not 
trying to make the thing happen. We're not wishing that thing upon us or upon other people. We're saying, I'm going to pull out this compulsive behavior that historically, in your most rational mind, you've said, man, this thing probably has no impact on my life, no impact on the thing that I'm doing. So I'm going to pull that out. And then we're going to see what happens. And we're going to learn whether or not we can handle the anxiety, spoiler, you can, through practice. And we're going to learn that that thing that you're afraid of is really unlikely to happen. And so we start building this confidence through exposure and response prevention. So a typical way to do that that's often, that, that's, that's very, very common with um, ERP treatment is to make a giant hierarchy, maybe basically a big old list of all the things that you do, all the things that make you uncomfortable. There, people do it differently. Um, I, in the past, I've done it where I've made a list of, you know, all the, all the situations, words, ideas that make you feel uncomfortable, and then all the compulsions that you do in response to them. Some people make them as a, just a giant list of compulsions, and then you can uh, rate each of those of how uncomfortable you would be if you had to pull out that that compulsion or how uncomfortable you'd, you would be if you had to do said exposure. There are a lot of different ways to do it. Sometimes people will start from small to big. Some people will make this big giant list and then go at them at random. However you do it or however you do it with your clinician, your therapist, your doctor, um, the whole point, the entire point is do the thing that you're afraid of don't do the compulsion. That's really it. So some examples of maybe like starting from small to big would simply be writing the word um, or saying the word of the thing that you're uncomfortable about. Now, that can be too, too difficult too. Let's say, for example, someone's afraid or triggered by the word AIDS. So if, if the word AIDS is too uncomfortable, I've sometimes started with like, we're going to write the letters just on pieces of paper. So, A, new piece of paper. I, new piece of paper. You get the idea. And then you and then you have them all kind of jumbled up, and you kind of sit with that because there's the anticipation of it, and we just simply sit with the discomfort of that, right? It's not the thing, but it's the idea of the thing, right? But we're, we're not hiding from it or running from it. We're saying, this is a thought. This is uncomfortable. And then we eventually put the words together or maybe, you know, start with the words all the way at the other end of the room and then slowly start moving them together and eventually writing the word. You can write a sentence with that word in it. And it can be something ambiguous. It can, it can just simply be, you know, um, cancer is a medical diagnosis. As simple as that. It can then work up to, I might get cancer, Right. It doesn't need to, and you can graduate too. I may, or I, I will get it, or I have it, or I will give it, right? And again, these are just ideas that are making someone feel uncomfortable. You can move up to reading Wikipedia articles and tolerating that discomfort. Scripting is very common with when it comes to health anxiety. Scripting is just writing out this big old long story about the, the worst case scenario happening and then rereading and rereading and rereading that story. You can move up to watching movies about that where a character has whatever that disease is or whatever medical issue uh, in it. And inevitably, that story, that movie, that, that thing that you write will be uncomfortable. But as you continually read it while resisting compulsions, you start to learn that this story is just that, just a story. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to drop off a cliff. 
the purpose of it is to ultimately say, I'm willing to do this uncomfortable thing. And a fun side effect of that oftentimes is feeling fewer symptoms and having and thinking differently about that thought, right? So a, a basic example of that is like if you were to... Um, if you were to, uh, let's say you were afraid of, well, let's pick an illness. If you were afraid of uh, getting cancer, you'd write out this story of getting cancer. So as you read it, the first couple of days is probably going to feel uncomfortable. But if you read it every day for a half an hour, day 30 is going to be a lot easier than day one. It works the opposite too. Whatever your favorite food is, you love that food. If you were to eat that for every meal, every day for a month, day one and two is going to be awesome. Day 30 is going to suck and be boring. It's just how it works. So the idea is it, it, in the course of continually doing your exposures, you start to see, you know what? Or it changes the way that you think about it, right? Notice in that, that kind of basic outline. In that process of reading that story every day for a month, it changed it from, oh, no, this is terrible, to, you know, it, it's not my favorite, but the story isn't that bad, right? Because it's just that story. So same thing with movies, and you can move up to, you know, going to a hospital, meeting someone, meeting people who have X illness, whatever it might be, volunteering at a place. There are a lot of different ways that you can do exposure and response prevention, but that is going to be a key component to treatment. Now, we'll jump into another ad. We've got one more at the end, but we'll, we'll just play one ad here. And then uh, I'll go over ACT and uh, ICBT. Gentlemen, listen up. The older you get, the longer you live. All gets you closer to one thing, prostate cancer. You probably aren't thinking about prostate cancer because you're too busy thinking about testicular cancer. Forget testicular cancer. That stuff's from women, bike riders, and that's not you. You're a Steve Jobs kind of person. Healthy, strong, smart, attentive to your health. So is Steve Jobs. The prostate is the new balls, fellas, from the makers of cancer. And uterine cancer, prostate cancer, is the only cancer that is uniquely formulated for you. Use testosterone soap, manly, confident men, and prostate havers. It's carefully crafted like a weirdly named IPA served by some handlebar mustache having hipster in a denim apron. Only it's in your butt. Repeatedly ask your doctor about prostate cancer. All right, welcome back. So let's talk about ACT, so acceptance and commitment therapy. So ACT is this uh, ACT is a great mindfulness-based uh, approach that I think works really well uh, in conjunction with CBT and exposure and response prevention. So you can think about acceptance, the first part of it, acceptance, you're accepting the present experience, and then the commitment is taking intentional steps towards or in a valued direction. So the core principles of ACT are found in something called the Hexaflex, and you can read a little bit more about this online if you'd like, and I'll go over the basics of it here. It's, it's going to be a lot more elaborate than this, obviously, but kind of the basic idea of it is it's in the name, acceptance and commitment. We're going to accept the reality of what, where we're in, the things that are happening right now, who we are in context with it, and then saying, well, what, is my gonna, what am I going to do about that? What's a more important thing? What's a more effective thing for me to be doing right now? So 
the the six steps are or the six parts of it and it's not in order that's kind of the cool part about act is that it doesn't have to be done in order you can kind of do it out of order as necessary and talking about the different components of it and how it how it will affect and work for you so the six components there's going to be acceptance diffusion contact with the present moment self as context values and then committed action so let's just briefly go through those so acceptance non-judgmental acceptance of the present moment in internal and external experience. So uh, an, uh, an example can be accepting the reality of a feeling, sensation, etc., just as what it is and nothing more. So saying, yes, right now this is happening. I am having this thought. I am having this feeling. Not saying it's good or it's bad, but that it is. Some people don't love the word acceptance because it kind of implies this idea that you have to like it or you're saying it's good. And that's not what we're saying here. We're saying acceptance is, if I sometimes will substitute acknowledge instead of accept. We're acknowledging the reality of this. We don't have to love it or like it, but we do have to acknowledge the reality that you're having that thought, you're having that feeling, whether you, quote, like it or not. Diffusion is then recognizing the process of thought without getting caught up in the, in the process of thought. So kind of noticing your mind racing is something that you don't have to engage with, but that it's happening without your control. So an, an example of this might be noticing how anxiety spins into this catastrophic story um, uh, and how it kind of presents these images, right? So you're kind of stepping back from yourself saying, you know, the, the my thoughts are doing this. I notice that these things are happening. And I notice that, you know, my I, I have this image in mind. It kind of separates the story, the thought from who you are as a person, what, it, what your core values, what your core self is, and saying, all right, I am not my thoughts, my thoughts are not me, but I have thoughts and I experience my thoughts. Kind of my example for this is, is sometimes, you know, if you move your body around, you can sometimes feel the shirt on your skin, but you're not your shirt, but you feel your shirt, but you know you're not it. Same thing with our feelings. We can have feelings and see that they kind of move and shift and they're transitory, but that's not who we are. So seeing them as separate from ourselves. So next, contact with the present moment. It's grounding yourself here in this moment, which includes, uh, which includes the content from your other senses, your internal and your external. So an example of this might be observing the symptom or the sensation as one of many things you're observing and experiencing. So in this moment, yes, you might be feeling anxiety, but what else? What else is going on, right? So it's to, it's to let go of the, just this one, this myopic focus on it, and to say, well, what else can I be experiencing? How do I anchor myself in the moment rather than getting sucked into this one particular story? So moving on to self as context, it's self as context is noticing and observing yourself and seeing your thoughts and feelings as in the context of the moment, meaning that the thoughts and feelings that you're having are being experienced within you, not as experienced as in reality, but they are experienced and they are felt within your mind, within your body. But again, we can say that's not reality, that's happening within me. <clears throat> 
So moving on to the values component. Values, they, they say, is, uh, it's defining that which is most important to us and, and kind of that stuff that kind of fills us with joy and meaning and purpose and like kind of it's like the full future idea, right? It's the stuff that we actually enjoy and want to do. So then where does worry fit into your values? And how about connection? How about work? How about bravery, right? Like oftentimes within OCD and health anxiety, well, the OCD specifically is that people will do things of low value out of, in the service of their obsessions, meaning that they don't like the compulsions, but they do them because they feel that they have to. The idea that we're doing here is to say, instead of doing things of low value, let's do things of high value. Let's be pursuing things that we actually want and enjoy while doing less of the things that we don't enjoy. Now, the committed action is then taking intentional steps towards those values, to making a choice to engage with those values rather than simply turning away from your values uh, into rumination or checking or, or other types of compulsions, right? So then we're making a plan. What are the ways that I can enact my values, the things that are most important to me, rather than just getting sucked back into my rumination and things that I don't really care about? So how can I just gently shift? Now, this isn't thought suppression. This isn't rejection. It's a shift. And we do this shift all the time in, 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 in real life. And we've talked about this on other episodes. But that's partially here where we're saying, all right, if my brain is just overwhelmed by thoughts of an illness or noticing a physical sensation, well, we can notice those things and say, yeah, they are happening. I don't like them or love them, but they're there. But the fear of those things are happening within the context of my mind and within my body, but they may not be genuinely truths, genuine truths about life. So what am I going to do now that I've acknowledged that they're here, now that I know that they aren't things that I always have to do something about, what, where do I want to go with that? Do I want to go to the doctor again? Do I want to Google again? Or do I want to just say, this is my thought and feeling, and I'm going to let go of my responsibility over it and go to work, send some emails, call a friend, do some juggling. I don't know what you're going to do, but doing something of slightly greater value than that whole rigmarole that you have historically done. So I know all this can get more and more complicated, but um, you know, I, I really like ACT, especially in light of, of giving one motivation to then go do exposures, right? Maybe recovery and life and engagement is a heck of a lot more important to you than getting stuck in this endless loop. Even though you might say, well, survival and health is, is important, right? But are the compulsions that you're doing genuinely leading you towards health and safety, or is it getting you more stuck in anxiety and discomfort and rumination? So that can be something to kind of work out. So let's jump into this last bit. So this is from inference-based CBT. So inference-based CBT is a framework of therapy to kind of consider how you tend to come to your conclusions. It's kind of this idea of, of how your anxiety is built, the story anxiety tells, how it grabs onto it, and how it leads into, in a sense, naturally those compulsions, but by naturally they are distorted and inaccurate. So by identifying the ways that your brain thinks about this, we can start to say those behaviors don't make any sense within the context that I'm in. So perhaps those behaviors I can let go of based on my false conclusions. So 
it, it, so ICB, ICBT also has this, uh, I think, fantastic module that discusses uh, the feared vulnerability that we have and the feared vulnerability that helps you to recognize why this obsession has grabbed onto you. Um, and not that it's uh, you know genuinely real because you're thinking about it, but because it taps into this kind of core fear. But what I want to focus on today is something that uh, I'm pulling from module two within ICBT. Module two looks at the method to how your brain is coming up with the conclusion that, you, that your health is in danger and that your compulsive behaviors are therefore necessary. So the way that anxiety it kind of weaves this story or develops this evidence. And it kind of talks about it in this OCD logic, right? It makes sense within itself, but it only makes sense within with these bits of evidence, right? So it has five points that we'll go over. So abstract facts and ideas, general rules about things, hearsay, personal uh, experiences, and just it's possible, Right, And from all these things, it then mounts this kind of argument to say, see, based on all this stuff, this is why it's important and necessary and required for you to go and do that medical test again or for you to Google again because of all this stuff. Right, So again, it has this OCD logic and something that, that ICBT calls uh, irrelevant association. So it's kind of this association from this other story that it's applying to you or this moment, but in reality, they're they're separate, or that that example only really applies to that instance. So, uh, hopefully, this will make a little bit more sense. So, let's talk about abstract facts and ideas. So, it can pull these different ideas about, but are facts and truths, right? So, sometimes an STD can be in you without you knowing. True, it's it's true that can happen. So, it kind of pulls that. But it's going to say, all right, it can be in you without you even knowing. But what it's saying is it's disregarding the actual experience from your life that you're not experiencing any symptoms of an STI. But it still says, yeah, but it's true that an STI can be in you without you knowing. So therefore, shouldn't you get another test, call a doctor, warn your, warn your partner, right? So another abstract fact, uh, pain in the left arm sometimes is a sign that you're having a heart attack. All right, True. But it can also just it mean a pulled muscle. It can mean a tendon feels a little bit weird. It could mean that you slept on a little weird, right? There's a lot of things that it could be. But anxiety will grab onto that and say, see, let's play it safe. So general rules. Um, people should care about their health. Sure. Another one can be um, it's thoughtful to know whether or not you're sick so that you don't infect others. Like, Sure. But anxiety will grab onto those and say, see, you're doing the right and moral thing. And let's now spend hours and hours focusing on this, or let's really stress out about this. The next one is hearsay. So hearsay can be, uh, you know, stuff that you heard, stuff that you've, you, you've seen. So an example can be, you know, I saw this news story where somebody got a false negative on a test. So that could be me. Or, it, you know, for those of us who, you know, are a little bit older, I remember when HIV AIDS was a death sentence, right? So it's hearing these stories, reading these, uh, you know, seeing this on the news, etc. And your brain kind of says, all right, well, I, I remember this or this was, this was true for this person. This is part of that irrelevant association, right? This is true for that person, so therefore it's true for me. But man, there's a lot of things that are true for other people or that were true for a time that don't apply to us within the context that we are in. Personal experiences 
and say, well, I had COVID once without having symptoms, so who knows, uh, who knows the, uh, what I have without symptoms, right? So another one can be, uh, I, I've gotten pneumonia before, and it was awful, right? That can supercharge you saying, well, I need to take care of this because I've had this before, and boy, was it terrible, so I should be overly cautious to prevent this. So lastly, it's possible, and this is where it really grabs you. So we've talked about all these bits of experience that we could have. But then it says, you know what we're going to do? We've, we've exhausted all of the things that we can grab onto through experience and stuff. But instead, now we're just going to play with making stuff up and say it's possible. So it, it utilizes your imagination. Who knows what could happen within your imagination? Our fears are only limited by our human imagination. Man, you and I can think about a lot of stuff. So despite all evidence in the world against my health, against my health or against my, my positive health or with, against the, the, the possibility that I have this disease, it says, I could develop that. Could asks you to step out of reality and into fantasy. And fantasy is anything other than reality. And within fantasy, anything is possible. So we could develop that extremely rare disease. And we could imagine a story in which we have. But from that imagined story, we apply it to ourselves and as true and hard evidence. And man, it is not. It's kind of like saying, you could win the lottery. You could. There is a chance you could win the lottery. But if you imagine it, does that mean that then you should go out and buy a boat just because you imagined it? No, that's bonkers, right? Because that's not evidence. That's not hard evidence that you've won. What that is is evidence of a thought. It's evidence of a story, right? So we're recognizing that imagination and imagined stories are not the same, right? So similarly, um, uh, you could see that you could see given the very specific stories of, uh, or you can imagine having a very specific series of events that you could catch or develop or contract a certain illness, right? You could envision that, but that doesn't mean that it will happen, can, or, or, or will happen, has happened, it's going to happen. It's just, you could imagine that. You can imagine a lot of things. But again, anxiety grabs onto that. So this is just another way, another framework to thinking about and starting to challenge your thoughts. Now, some people love ICBT, some people don't. Some people love ERP, some people don't. ICBT was kind of developed as a, for some of those folks where ERP was not, very, not as effective or not very effective. And some people who have uh, struggled with ERP have thrived in ICBT and, and, and vice versa. So it's a matter of kind of trying some of these things out and seeing what's going to resonate with you. But ultimately, both get at the point of saying... However you get there, compulsions are problems and need to be resisted and need to be minimized, reduced, eliminated, and that we need to face our fear or face the uncertainty about our future, uncertainty about life. So um, uh, why don't we take another quick ad break here, and then we'll just jump in. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in at the very end. This message is brought to you by AIDS. We've come a long way. You might have thought we were exclusive to only one select group of people, and you were left out. We were all the rage for years, but times have changed, and some people forgot we even existed. Medication, education, and changes to people's practices may have made it so you might not even worry about us. But we never left. 
And for some of our most loyal customers, we'll never leave. AIDS is for everyone. Gay, straight, AIDS is for you. Drug addict, use any medication ever, AIDS. If you get in a car accident and are in a coma and are given a blood transfusion to save your life, heck, walk by a spot on the floor that was vaguely red. It was probably a discoloration on the tile floor and you didn't even touch it, at least probably not, but you could have. And who knows what it was because you didn't get a really good look at it. Who knows? AIDS might be for you too. AIDS, we're always there because we care. All right, everybody. So thank you so much for making it through the episode. Um, uh, hopefully the ads weren't too distracting. Hopefully they were helpful as as interesting or fun or silly exposures to lighten the mood a little bit. But um, I thought I'd add a little bit in that to provide a, a little bit of an example of what exposures can feel like. And hopefully you were able to sit through those and tolerate the anxiety just for that minute or so that they were. Um, and and hopefully it, you, you laughed a little bit along the way. So as with everything, I, I know I missed some things. I know that this is not a comprehensive one or comprehensive episode where I'm going to hit every single point and every single example. I, I know that I can't and nobody can. But hopefully this gave you an idea of what health anxiety hypochondria is, how you can work with it, and that there is indeed recovery or it is indeed help out there for you. If you have questions about this, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or go over to fearcastpodcast.com um, and uh, send me a message there, send me your questions there, and I'll be happy to answer them on a future episode or rope in um, other professionals to help uh, help me tackle these questions. So thank you so much for making it through this episode. This was a, a fun one to do, I think, fun fun one uh, to do, and uh, I appreciate you letting me, uh, letting me be a part of your process. Thank you for listening to the FearCast. If you would like your question answered on a future episode, please click on the submit a question link at fearcastpodcast.com. If you would like your question answered sooner, please send me a recording of your question to questions at fearcastpodcast.com or by sending me an audio message through Instagram by DMing me at fearcastpodcast.com on Instagram. If you like the FearCast, please write a review on your podcast platform of choice. Please remember that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of help in your recovery, please go over to fearcastpodcast.com and click on the find help link. And there's going to be some information for you there. So until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye. It's carefully crafted, like a rim. <laughs> it was ridiculous.